1: You have a lot of comedians that are great, but sometimes it's a certain level you'll never get to because you never might have had a testing moment. And I call it a Muhammad Ali moment. As good as you are as a comedian, have you had a moment where you had to stand for something? Have you had a moment where you had to say, I don't care about money. I don't care about anything. These are my morals. These are beliefs that I stand on. And what decision do I make after that?
0: Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. So great to have you back. Hope you guys are hanging in there during this very, very difficult time that keeps going and going and going. But I know that if you're listening, you feel as I do that you will persevere and we will get through this and we will be better. After it's all over, I'm really excited about today's show with comedian, actor Don L. Rawlings. This guy's incredible, an amazing guest, and has had an incredible career. Before I get started, I want to let you know if you need to reach me, you can do so at Barry Katz at Instagram or Twitter or my website at barrykatz.com. I'd be glad to reach back out to you. If you leave me a message, I'll try to do so as soon as I can. And without further ado, let's start part one of two with Donnell Rawlings. And what better way to do so than to give him the proper introduction? Here it goes. I know you're going to find this episode very, very impactful. Donnell Rawlings is best known as one of the major cast members on the Comedy Central sketch comedy TV series, Chappelle Show. Rollins was born in D.C. and grew up in Alexandria, Virginia with his mother. And after his time at school, he served in the United States Air Force. Rollins is most notable for frequently appearing in sketches on Chappelle's show and hosting the third season. Along with the late Charlene edition on Heavy.com, Rollins stars in a series of sketch comedy clips portraying his iconic character, Ashy Larry. Outside of comedy in the dramatic world, Donnell has made numerous appearances on some of the greatest HBO series in history, including The Corner and The Wire, where he played an ex-convict who is hired as a legislative aide and driver for corrupt state senator Clay Davis. Other notable TV appearances, including many Law & Order franchises, Special Victims Unit, SVU, and Criminal Intent, as well as NBC's Third Watch, On the big screen, he can be seen in Spider-Man 2. Other appearances include the Comedy Central show Reality Bites Back, sketches on the D.L. Hughley show Break the News, and on Howard Stern's original TV on-demand show In the Hallway. He also has appeared on the hit MTV2 show Guy Code, which he did for two seasons, as well as the show Hip Hop Squares. He was also the judge for a Guy Code spinoff, Guy Court. His recent film and TV work includes a role in the Jay and Silent Bob reboot film and a starring role in Kevin Smith's Hollyweed. He's also appeared on The New Negroes for Comedy Central, Historical Roast with Jeff Ross on Netflix. He was also featured on TBS's The Last OG with Tracy Morgan and is recurring on the new Emmy-nominated series It's Bruno. And his stand-up is well-documented in the hour special Donnell Rawlings from Ashy the Classy. Currently, Rawlings hosts his own podcast called The Donnell Rawlings Show, which he posts content of on his YouTube channel. And even during the pandemic, somehow, some way, Donnell is currently touring the world, performing the sold-out audiences with his new show, Too Soon, with Donnell Rawlings. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome my guest today, one of the few people, Dave Chappelle, feel strongly enough about to tour the world with. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome my guest today. What an honor, Donnell Rawlings.
1: I am humbled by that intro, and I'm also nervous by the intro. So much memory at the Boston Comedy Club. And like, I don't know if people, I'm pretty sure people know your history, but people don't understand what it means to be a transplant from somewhere else, have the idea of what I think a comedy club should be, how, uh, have the idea of what the showcase vehicle should be and to implement that, and especially in the area like the Village, as popular as that was, and be successful at it in a short period of time and compete with some of the biggest, most established names in stand-up. That's a lot to be said. It was so easy in your situation, you could have easily be like, I'm gonna be the king of Boston. You know what I mean? I know it was a tragedy in your life to kind of push it there, but you, didn't feel that way, and you made that transition. The same transition you did with that from from Boston to New York, you did that with LA. Every step of the way, you went to the next level. And every step of the way, when people possibly counted you, I was like, this motherfucker's crazy. You don't have to understand the method to my madness. I understand it, and I'm gonna execute it. And that's why, you know, in in the streets we say, I'm not gonna be on your dick like that, but that's why, your name still resonates in this industry. And with me personally, like this conversation right now, I remember as a young comic, me like, everybody was like this, you gotta be represented by Barry Katz. Everybody thought that. You had a fucking roster, it was like you had a roster of successful people. Everybody, I don't know if anybody had a comedy club where almost everybody performed that weekend was in a situation where they had a deal we <laughs> about to get to get. What's the guy's name? Red Johnny and the Round. Red Johnny and the Round guy. We had the largest deal in MTV history. Yo, let me tell you something. I've never, because I came up through the chitlin circuit of D.C., right? When I used to go to Boston Comedy Club, I was like, where did the fuck they found all these funny white boys right <laughs>
0: And for those of you listening who don't know what the Chitlin circuit is, that was the all black circuit there before Def Jam ever really became huge. It was
1: before Def Jam. It was in the um, mindset of back in the day juke joints where black people had to establish their own venues. It was sort of like, if you want to say Fight Club, it was underground. And at the time when I came up that, you know, for me as a black comic, it was the best thing going. But also as a black comic, and not to say that you needed mainstream acceptance, but everybody's like yeah, I can make black people laugh, this may sound crazy, I can make black people laugh, I know my people, but for you to be able to be NBC, CBS, and all these other places, it's not a crossover, but you had to be introduced to mainstream. And that was one of the toughest things to do. So you never saw funny white comedians in D.C.? No, the reason I didn't, because I wasn't, on that circuit, I wasn't working garments. I work wasn't working when I was coming up. Only club we had was the Comedy Connection in Greenbelt. Yeah, you remember that Comedy Connection Greenbelt? Was that Raj? It was Raj. Yep, Raj and his wife and his and his and his kids. But in, in in regard to like urban comedy, that was the only thing. That was a club. Everything else was like we had what we call it cabarets, like a night of music, and then you have a couple of comedians. But it was nothing exclusive, just for black comedy. So I didn't know that circuit. And I, and I left D.C. to go to New York, and I said, I'm going there, I'm not going just to just be a black comic, I'm going there just to just be a good comic. And it took me a while, but eventually, some people started seeing the things I did, and I started getting some acceptance, and I started working at the clubs.
0: I have so many things to ask you, but I think the biggest thing I have to ask you relates to what you said about me, which I know it might be shocking to you or the audience, but I never thought of it the way you thought of it. I guess I was just naive, and I just switched things around, and I always did that. Like, when I went to L.A. and when I went to New York, my thought process was I want to be a manager. I don't know how to be a manager, but I'm going to be a manager. And I realized quickly that I couldn't represent people like Colin Quinn that were already established and Alan Havey. I had to represent teenagers who weren't established or people who hadn't made it yet. People who would believe in me as much as I believed in them and we had nothing to lose. And then before I knew it, there were four people on Saturday Night Live and there were deals and people were getting in and people were listening to me because I realized you're only as good as your last recommendation. So you might as well have people prepared and I was really great at preparing artists for things.
1: And I know you were so much, public. I remember one time, like like it was Barry Cassie, the big time manager, but I remember one time seeing you in an editing boot editing suite, like getting ready for one of those NACA conventions or whatever, where a manager could have said, I, I want somebody to do this, but I remember you editing I remember you putting reels together, doing the extra stuff that a lot of the people that want to be superstar managers don't have time for that.
0: And even the superstar managers, if they were sitting here, would tell you that they just farm that out and have the artist pay for it. I think one of the things that I did that might seem crazy to the audience or even to other managers or agents out there is that I always love doing everything. So I figured if I have my hands on it and it fucks up, I only have one person to blame, me. But if I give it to somebody else and they fuck it up and then the artist says, well, what happened to that? Oh, well, that guy fucked it up. No, I fucked it up because I gave it to that person and I didn't have the thing. So I love going to the Bay. That's why every NACA, the National Association of College Activities, for those of you who don't know, I had five, six, seven people every convention get accepted because I knew how to edit the reels where I felt I could get their attention. Because my feeling was, even though they told you to submit a five-minute tape, I was able to get inside information that nobody else was able to get. And I would go to the young students who were there in previous years and call them up who weren't on the committees anymore. And I would say, listen, what? how do you do this submission process? Right. Oh, Barry, you don't know? No, I've no, no, I'd love to know. I mean, just, I'll keep it to myself. Oh, well, what happens is all the representatives from the colleges who are in the board get together and they're in a room one weekend and they have all the VHS tapes of the comedians. And the rule is we put it in the deck for one minute. And then we hold it up and we say, how many for, how many against? After a minute? Yes. And then we have the pile that's left after the minute. Then we put it in again. We go for two minutes. And then we shut it off. How many for, how many against? And they look at how many are left. And then the rest of the time to determine the last one
1: so the black comedians that had musical intros didn't stand a chance right because they were singing they would be singing for a minute it's like it's gone
0: no no chance right and that's why there were so few african-american people who did naca but later on i got inside information that they went to two minutes to start right and so the point is, is that I would always, when I was looking at people to work with them, one of the biggest things that I would do was I would watch a videotape with the sound off for the first two minutes. Joe,
1: it was so funny you say that, Barry, because as a young comic, I need to go back to some of the things that help me get to the point where I'm at right now. That's how I would study myself. I would actually, have a VHS recording of myself, right? And I would watch it, and I would say to myself, how interesting am I now with no sound? If I'm moving around, you know, can people kind of get a sense of what I'm talking about without the audio? That's so crazy that you said that.
0: Yeah, and sometimes you might say as an artist watching or an executive, well, what about a guy who just stood there like a Dennis Miller type? But you can still tell when somebody commands the room and they have this weird connection with you on the television and to the crowd. And so what you're saying about all those things, it really blows me away. And what I want to share with the audience about you is that you're a guy who literally slow and steady wins the race. And you might say to yourself, as an artist, as most artists do, no matter how big or how much they're in the beginning starting, well, what are you talking about? I'm nowhere near where I'm supposed to be. I'm nowhere near where I want to be. I got a long, long way to go. But the point is, is that you're winning. And the point is, a genius feels safe with you a genius in comedy, and I defy you and the audience watching and listening to name all the people in our business that do stand-up comedy who they feel are geniuses. Not the ones who passed away, the ones that are alive. And you can count them on half a hand and Don L. Rawlings, there's one genius out there of a handful that believes in you, wants you around, wants you in his house, wants you to hang out with him. Geniuses don't often take dust and diamond from, say, by the bell with them on the road. Right. <laughs> Geniuses don't take the parrot from Beretta with them. Right. I remember Carol Leifer once said something to me that really moved me and meant something to me, and I hope it meant something to the audience. She was hired as a young writer for Seinfeld. Larry David and Jerry hired her. There were so many writers that had done so much more than her, so much sitcom experience that weren't hired. And at the end of the year, she had the guts or at least the inclination to go up to both of them at a party and say, can I just ask you guys a question? Why did you hire me? And they said, besides being a really talented writer, the biggest reason is you're a good hang.
1: Do you know, I don't know if you're, do you know and follow that in the genes that people would, have, Dave Chappelle, I'll just give you an example. Dave Chappelle just created this outdoor comedy venue in Yellow Springs, it was like almost Fight clubbish.
0: Where he filmed 846 or whatever? 846.
1: 846, it's basically an outdoor pavilion that people get married at, right? And um, he wanted to create something to some of his closest friends to be able to continue to work out. You know what I mean? To not lose your edge to be able to get with some of his friends and just have a creative think tank and we get to tell jokes. And um, not too many people have seen Dave Chappelle in the capacity where he's the MC, because when you see Dave Chappelle's name on a bill, you don't necessarily want to hear Dave Chappelle and Friends. You know what I mean? You were like, fuck that, we want you. But he was doing he it, he did an intro. And just follow what you said. When my intro came up, and it's like, you know, sometimes can, people can build you up. Like the, the old black intro used to be like, you seen more Def Jam, not once, not twice. You seen on BET seven times. But this intro for me coming up, he was like, when I was doing the Chappelle show, there were two people that I considered to be cast members. He said, one is not with us anymore, the late, great Charlie Murphy. The next thing he said, the other person, he's one of my favorite comedians to watch. He's a funny comedian. I said, but more importantly, he said, he's a good hang. And it's so I'm telling you, I could bring up the audio right now, Barry, and say that. And out of anything you can say about me, I, and that goes to being a friend. That goes to anything. You know what I mean? Like he had a great set or whatever. But the fact a good hang, that means that we can remove ourselves away from stand up. We could talk about our family, and people always assume that me and Dave are just coworkers, but we're close as friends. And how do you get that? By talking to somebody when you're at the worst point in your life, being able to talk to that person, going to funerals with that person, going to weddings with that person, your family knows each other, and that's what our, away from what we did on Chappelle's show, that is our connection. And following up on what you say about the genius thing, I think that I'm a great comic. And with that, I have a competitive nature. Not that it's gonna be disruptive to a friendship or anything, but anytime Dave Chappelle goes on the stage, if he emcees, whatever, I'm trying to kill it after him. And I'm I'm trying to kill it before him. But the thing that I love about our relationship is the mutual respect that we have for each other, as friends, as fathers, and as people that do this. And I ask myself, you go to interview. There's hardly a way, not an interview I can have, Barry, where not people ask about the Chappelle show, right? Are and you I'm
0: surprised like, I haven't asked you?
1: No, no, I'm, I'm surprised because you. I, I know we'll get there, but people always ask the question. Like I'm up here to talk about me, whatever. But then people are like, what is it about Dave that makes him? I say he's the greatest, right? And they say, why do you say that? And you talk to a person that like I rip stages, and I say, why is he great? And I say. You have a lot of comedians that are great, but sometimes it's a certain level you'll never get to because you never might have had a testing moment. And I call it a Muhammad Ali moment. As good as you are as a comedian, have you had a moment where you had to stand for something? Have you had a moment where you had to say, I don't care about money. I don't care about anything. These are my morals. These are beliefs that I stand on. And what decision do I make after that? And that Muhammad Ali moment for him came from the Chappelle show. You know him close to anybody else. He might have had some smaller moments there, but that was the moment where people had a different type of respect. They judge him for his integrity and they judge him for what they thought his moral beliefs were. Nobody knows the inside of him leaving that show, but that's when he had that moment.
0: I only represented him for eight, maybe nine years. Well, I say only, that's a right, I was getting ready to say,
1: God damn. Uh, that's I mean- a house. <laughs>
0: What's weird is no matter what anybody says about the business, as a side note, believe it or not, I really never thought about the money. I always thought money would come. And that's why you always saw me having offices in Boston, New York, L.A., Back and forth employees because I just thought let me put everything back in let me bet on these people like they're betting on themselves and the money will happen it'll come and if it doesn't something knew, else for me. But you knew even if you
1: want to about you knew you had an eye you knew you had work ethics that's a difference like you don't have to trip off the money if you if you know you're good and like just stay the course. Eventually it would happen. And I remember you gave me so many jokes. That's why I was excited. You was like, You want to do my you want to do my pocket? I was like, fuck yeah. I remember trying to get you to manage me and it's like and I was hot coming up, but you still gave some good advice. Like you asked me for one thing you asked me it was like, Does your hair grow and how's your tax situation? Right. <laughs> like before I invest anything, motherfucker, <laughs> is that is that fucking levy or whatever gonna fuck my money up? And the hair. Basically, motherfucker, how old are you? You know, you gave me, you you said some things to me that like, I was like this, the fact that I could get a meeting with Barry, like that could be a credit. Back in the day, it could be like this, he just had a meeting with Barry Katz, right? <laughs> <laughs> and you like, yo, you signed with him? And I remember you saying stuff, and I was eager, man. I remember you saying stuff, you, you said something like, Donnell, uh, you gotta give the manager the tools to work. You know, everybody wants to go in there and like because of your reputation, they think they don't have to have a skill set. They don't think they have to have talent. It's like just, oh, I'm with Barry Katz. And your name was popping that way. Your name was popping to the point where, you know what, who is this motherfucker? They gonna get the benefit of the doubt. It must be something about them because Barry Katz said he wanna see him. And I remember you telling me, no manager wants to work harder for your career than you're gonna do for yourself. I remember you telling me this shit. You dropped jewels and that, like, okay, you could have been like, okay, I could work with him, or whatever, but you had your roster popping. And also, you like I I I remember when I came from the Chitlin circuit and when I was trying to get in the comedy cellar and I knew you had juice. You could be like, hey, uh give this guy a shot. And you looked at me and you said, if you want to make it this business, you want to get these clubs, He said, you said, just rip everywhere. Just rip everywhere, until this day. Because I've mentored a lot of young comics. There's so many things you've told me that I didn't give you your credit for, right? I didn't say Barry told me this. I just took it as it was my own. Right? <laughs> I was like this, and I talked to young comics, Barry. And everybody has an excuse. They're like, um, I, "I'm doing this. Uh, I want. I need to. I need to be a paid regular, so and so." And I said, "How many times you went up this week? Five times, right?" I'm like, "How many times you rip?" And the min- if they don't fucking say every show, I'm like, there's your problem right there. It don't matter, nobody wants to see the growth. You're not, cons- you're, the consistency. People wanna see, every time they see you, you blowing shit up. So you go five spots a week, one of them you blow up. No, you need to be at that point where you're ripping every time. And like you told me, you said, the people will notice.
0: I hate to admit it, even as long as I've been in it, I still don't always understand why it's so hard. I mean, the jokes are written on a piece of paper if you write them on a piece of paper. If you're Dave Chappelle, I never saw him write anything on a piece of paper. I used to write out the bits and segment them so it was easier for him if he wanted to absorb them. But his process was completely different. And, and then so were Tracy Morgan's processes are different from Whitney Cummings. Were you
1: representing Tracy when he got SNL? Yeah, of course. Do you know I was at the audition? no i was at that audition right this is so crazy i auditioned the same fucking night to tracy morgan and i realized at the comic strip at the comic strip lauren michael in the back right how the hell i got there i don't know but i realized how new i was because i was it was it was too much of a setup i had too much setups and everything but i remember tracy morgan in an interview i was like that bit was so but he did exactly what they needed. I remember one of the characters probably helped me get it. The black hockey player. Yeah. The black hockey player. And when he committed, like me, I, you know, you need time to see me. At that point, like 20 minutes, okay, I'll get it. But that's not what you had. Lauren Michael, show me the shit right now. I remember when he did the hockey player, and I remember he was going character to characters. The segways weren't there, it wasn't like you were doing a feature spot, but he knew what the fuck he was doing then.
0: give you all the great special guests, and even give you one-on-one private consultations to help you expand, enhance, and skyrocket your comedy career. Just go to barrykatz.com and click on Blueprint for Success to learn more about my groundbreaking digital academy that I've created just for you. With it, we can take your career so far that one day, instead of listening to this podcast, you'll be interviewed on it it was commitment and i'll tell you this i had seven people on that audition and there were 16 people on the audition at the comic strip yeah and i got a call 48 hours or so beforehand from lauren and marcy klein who was the executive producer on the show And they said, Barry, we are so grateful for what you've done, you have seven people on the show. But Lauren feels like the show is a little too long and we wanna cut one of the people off the show who we feel has the least chance of getting the show. And unfortunately, it's one of your people. No, no, you can't do that. Yeah, and it's Tracy Morgan. And I'm not gonna go into the whole story because it's detailed and this is about you. But I spent 48 hours straight trying to reach them, calling, faxing, messengering, FedExing, until that day she finally called me back and told me he was back on the show. But Tracy never knew until maybe six months or a year after he got SNL that that happened because I didn't want him to have that on his mind because that was the first time he'd ever performed... In front of a white audience and I had prepared him for a week in the empty office next to mine on those but you know
1: another thing Barry when I saw that performance I didn't feel like he performed this is the difference I didn't feel like he performed for a white audience I feel like he performed for the cameras
0: that was what we did you see another thing that you said earlier which again jogged my memory and it's kind of humbling I spent eight hour days with him in a empty office next to my office and just going over it over and over again with a VHS camera and do it again, do it again. And he would say, well, how do I get from one thing to the other? Don't worry about it. Lauren Michaels doesn't care about transitions. He, he don't cares give a about fuck how funny. y'all
1: doing tonight. Ladies say hey, he don't Just, give a fuck about that. And it all worked out and he got the show. I actually, when I tell you, I witnessed that shit. I didn't remember that you were on it. Nobody remembers I was on <laughs> Nobody, I'm telling you, that's how, and the thing was, like back then, I know part of it, that the reason, one of the reasons I got the audition, because when I first started, I was able, as a stand-up comic, I was developing these characters. Right, like Fat Tyrone, the kid that took my bike when I was a kid. This guy that used to steal from a grocery store when I worked for this grocery chain in D.C. But I didn't know how to get to the other things and it was like, I was young. You know, I was young, but I was like, now that I look at it, I was like, that was an opportunity. and I, It's a as,
0: huge opportunity. You told
1: me one time, Barry, this told you, because I was like this, and it was one time I was like this, I don't know if Barry gets what I was like, but you know what, I'm gonna prove to him that I can fucking do it, right? And um, I remember one time I asked you about something, about uh, about I said I need I need another opportunity, and you said, "Are you going out for pilot season?" Yesterday you told me, I said, "Yeah." For he the said, audience
0: who doesn't know who's listening, pilot season, traditionally speaking, although <laughs> with the pandemic everything could change and it's changing more year round. But for the major networks, pilot season is essentially from January whatever to the end of May. Uh, And so what happens is the scripts get picked up in the winter time and then they go into casting the pilots and then they shoot the pilots and they sit in the room at the end of May and decide what shows are getting on the air and what shows don't get on the air. And I remember you
1: telling me, because you said, um. Are you going, did you go out for pilot season? I said, yeah. You said, how many auditions did you do? Right? I said, I think like eight or nine. And you looked at me and you said, you had nine times to leave out of that room with a quarter of a million dollars. Right? And I was like, what the fuck you talking about? And I was like, you know what? Did I give it my best effort? Did I prepare myself? You know what I'm saying? And it made a lot of sense to me because like Donnell look at how many people want an opportunity to be able to go out for a pilot? You know what it made me think? Like, I couldn't think like, all right, there'll be another one, because it may not be another one. And like you said, you have an opportunity to win. And I had to, so many times that you said stuff to me that I was like, the fuck is he talking about, right? But at the same time, I get it. And that's just with growth and everything. And it's like, even like, almost like raising kids, like, um, you tell a kid something, you keep telling, you keep telling, and like, you don't get it, you don't get it. It doesn't really resonate until it comes back somewhere down the line in their life, and that's where wisdom comes from, Like this is what he's trying to say. Hopefully it's not too late, but I listen to a lot of those things.
0: I think about things that I said and how I said them back then, and sometimes I'm really disappointed in myself, but I was trying to make a point. One of the things I remember saying a few times. I asked the question, how many auditions did you go out for? And let's say the person said, oh, I went on uh, 25 auditions during pilot season. Oh, great. How many did you book? None. And I'd say something like, so let me get this straight. You booked just as many pilots as a dead guy, right. a cadaver, a coffin could be wheeled into these auditions and you would have booked just as many. Not good. Not good. So you got to figure out how to blow people the fuck away. And what's hard about blowing people away in auditions, the hardest part is that you might say like dating, you don't normally go on the first date and meet your life partner. Normally they, or you say, I don't want to see you anymore. Right. It could be after the first date, the second date. It could be after a week, two months or whatever. And so in pilot season, you're vying for a seven year marriage and success in success. A show has got to go six or seven years normally to be considered an extraordinary win for the show and the artist. So they're, you're going on these auditions. You're going first for the casting director. Maybe you'll get a call back again for the casting director. Maybe not. Maybe the call back will be just with the producers, and then they're gonna decide whether you go to test or not. Cause it's so frantic during pilot oh, 100%. season. Sometimes you only have two chances to get the test, and if you get the test, then you're gonna do the contract for seven years believe it or not and you're going to be in there and you're going to go with the studio and the studio is going to see you and then you got to get that one and then you got to go to the network and then you got to win that one and you're on so essentially and a lot of people probably hate that I say it this way but in pilot season because it's so crazy you got to fool people four times in a row. You got to be the best representation of yourself where you blow everyone away, whether they're big or they're not big. One of the reasons why I presume, besides being a good hang, that Dave would love you to open for him is that you're not a tin can. You don't hold anything back. You go there to crush that crowd. And if you had the inclination one day, you might say something to him where he would laugh wholeheartedly as you were passing him.
1: Take that, motherfucker. Yeah, but you know what? But I'm going to tell you, this was the competitive nature of comics from DC. You know what I'm saying? It's not personal, but how do you... Get a name, Barry. When you have those defining moments, anybody can rip. When you set that that list up, like, well, he's not as strong. He's not as strong. You don't attest that person. But when I came up in D.C., it was like this: the baddest motherfuckers went on stage, and if you happen to get bumped, you got bumped. Now you got pussy motherfuckers that get bumped, Barry, and be like, "Where well, I'm gonna go home?" And then you got the people like this: I want to stay. I want to. I want to do that. Chapell told me countless t- a couple months ago. He said, let me tell you something. He said, man, you one of the funniest guys working today. He said, I feel the difference when I'm working with you. That's fantastic. You know, and it's no thing, Like he knows, you got some people out there like, uh-uh, he's going too hard. I want this crowd to be so-and-so. But that's what, and especially with Meek and the DC, service, that's what make us stronger. That's what makes us better. Going hard after somebody get hard. When, want so. sorry about that. but somebody goes hard and you 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 step your game up when i do i did the run with dave at radio city music hall you know and i could have been like some people try to protect their jobs by oh i just want to leave them something no i'm going i told dave one time like you know some people get fired for it but i'm never not going to bring it and guess what happens barry he knows that and he has a preparation, but it's not that in the back of his head, it's like this, okay, what do I do? But his situation is different, because I get a lot of praise. Like you go, if I go do a spot, 10 or 15 minutes right in front of Dave, I've heard some people like, yo, Dave was funny, but this guy was so-and-so, but all I got is 10 minutes. 10 minutes is such a nice, sweet spot to make an impact, but then you got the person to come behind it that got to get through that 10 minutes, they got to hold the audience for 35, for 40, and they got to bring it all together. There's so
0: many things he's doing that (laughs) when he invited me and one of my sons to see him at Radio City Music Hall. I saw
1: you that time too.
0: I mean, again, I'm not with him and some things are theatrical, but I have to believe that this was a real thing. He gets on stage and he just says, hey, I'm not going to do what I normally do tonight. Something happened in the world. Charleston, South Carolina. Was it Charlottesburg? One of the
1: cities in it's, it's South Carolina. But yeah, Charleston, I think it was. Because his family is from there.
0: And he proceeds to do his first 30 minutes on that. No notebook. No, no It happened the night before. But
1: that's that moment. And I'm going to tell you something, Barry. That's one of the things that... I got for him like you know you got I call you got pen and pad people people <laughs> are just with structure then people like like Dave certain people just like Dave he's going to build it by filling something in his life and getting on stage that's his therapy I don't care what nobody says as much as people say comedy is therapeutic for the stand up for the artist itself we need that. You get an argument with your wife, I need that stage. I'm just, I'm about to have a baby, I need that stage. I'm mad at the world, I'm gonna need that stage. And one of the things he does, and I've got some of this because it only helps, it only rubs off. I remember when, like maybe seven months ago when a lot of stuff was going on, crazy stuff, Me Too and all that shit, and there, everything was about cancel cult, cancel culture. And Dave looked at the improv, he looked at the audience, not the audience, but to the comedians in the back, he said, listen comedians, this is the time to really grab your balls because it's our job to make fun of the things that are troubling the world. A couple of years ago, I said, Dave, you've been funny. You established that you're a funny motherfucker. I said, you, you've been funny long enough that people, you don't even have to make people laugh anymore. I said, if people would pay to hear you talk. Cut to three years later, as much as they tried to roll out 846 as it was a Netflix special, it wasn't. It was i feel the birth of someone that could just destroy the podcast world it was somebody that was in the moment that did not rush to tell a joke they didn't rush to tell a joke because they know that that's not important but they know what's in their heart if they speak long enough because we're funny there'll be a subtle punchline. but that's not the point that's why you could hear a Dave Chappelle talk for four minutes like where's the jokes it ain't about a joke right now
0: it's about the silences. I don't know how many times I've said that throughout my life, but You
1: said it to me. <laughs> you said it to me in the most in the most the, the the most hood Dave Chappelle, you remember this. Dave Chappelle hosted a comedy night in New York at this place called El Flamingos. And at the time, of course, it, like Dave didn't come up in the go hard black circuit. El Flamingo's was like Dublin's out here. It was incredible, like the I, noise. If you know, okay, Barry, <laughs> if you know the structure of a comedy show, I'll put it like this. This what, this what El Flamingo's was. It was the check spot from the time the show started <laughs> <laughs> until it ended, right? And Dave used to have a hard, not a hard time, but I remember when, I remember when he left it, and he said, Why should I have to work this hard to make people laugh? (laughs) And I was like this, I want to do it, right? And I remember you saw me there one time and this room was like, it was where all the rappers went. It was like where, it was just one of those live ass rooms. I remember one time you told me, you said, "Donnell, I cannot remember a time where I could see someone come in an audience like this. Not just, because you could get silence in a comedy club, but in an audience like this where there's People trying to get pussy over here. The blender is going on. He said, and you could, and you could hear a pin drop. And that's when I really, you, you told me that, that's when I realized what it means to command a certain audience. And that's one of the things that I got from him is like, he when he performs, he ne- you, you never feel an urgency to make people laugh. I always say, if you do like the scheme of quarterbacks, like if you compare me as quarterback and Dave as quarterback, when we work, I'm more of a Michael Vick type of quarterback. I'm, like, trying to get a touchdown every time. Dave is more of Tom Brady. Dave will sit in the pocket. You hate him because he's always – not hate him, but he's always going to score. But you never see no pressure. You never see no stress. And he'll hold that ball to the last second, then boom, next thing you know, it's off to the races.
0: Look, if you go to a great restaurant you love and you go there 10 times and you're having a great time and you have a wonderful meal, and then the 11th time you're – Food is bad. It's not good. You're not not coming back.
1: You're going to come back. But you're going to know what chef was working that night. (laughs) (laughs) That happens to you. You're so so funny you say that because I've been in restaurants (laughs) and I'm like, what the fuck? And I'm like, who's in the kitchen? And it's like, oh, that's uh, Uncle So-and-so. Y'all like, you know he drink. (laughs) You know he's not supposed to be back there, but I understand you're not going to just give up on it.
0: Yeah, but it's also like if you watch your favorite drama or... Whatever it is, look, my sons watch Family Guy religiously and they're watching, and I see them watching and they're not laughing as hard. I said, What's going on? They said, Yeah, this year it's just not as funny as it's been in previous years. I said, But you're still watching? He said, Yeah, I mean, the guy's a genius, and I'm hoping that the next one will be better, but I'm still watching because I've watched 300 episodes. Of greatness.
1: That's so funny because that's when we were doing a Chappelle show. And that was like a phenomenal show. But what people don't understand is like, when we did those those shows, every sketch wasn't a home run. But one thing, at least every episode, there was at least one sketch that could hold down and represent the entire episode. One, two, three, four, five, five, Six Degrees of
0: Separation. I want to do a little Six Degrees of Separation. Okay. I'm going to mention some names. Tell me something that comes to mind. Could be anything. Could be a sentence, a short little story.
1: Bill Burr. Bill Burr um, is one of the best stand-ups to do it. My relationship with Bill Burr started with him doing a Boston Comedy Club. Bill Burr was one of the only white comics that I knew that would work the white rooms and the black rooms. He was favored in the black rooms because he was one of the only white guys that would do it. And not only did he did it, he was he was a killer. And I, I think that I was part of a transition with Bill Burr when we was doing Chappelle's Show. Not really making a lot of money doing that show, but we was getting a sense we was getting popular.
0: $935.50 a day. Who
1: got that white man? I got 500 Right, <laughs> <laughs> I think it was. But the thing about it was we knew being part of the show what it would do, but I realized I'm, like, I'm out here saying I'm rich, bitch, and all this, right, Barry? I'm like, but we're not making any money. So I came up with the idea of doing a tour called the I'm Rich Bitch Tour. I had to get Charlie Murphy to do stand-up for the first time. I said, we need another act, and I brought Bill Burr on with us. And at the time, Bill Burr probably was $800,000 a weekend headliner. But when you saw him, you knew he was going to- a
0: dollars to
1: $1,000. Yeah, a weekend, yeah. But you knew he was going to blow. And I negotiated with Mike Berkowitz. Yeah. Mike Berkowitz. Was Mike like,
0: Berkowitz is a personal appearance agent. And he
1: was a young one. I think at this time, the Rich Bitch Tour was probably the biggest tour he had in a while. And I negotiated. I set it all up. I was like, fuck it, let's do a three-way split. Three-way split three way split between me Charlie Bill Burr at the time Bill Burr was in a couple of sketches so he was it was a big deal because we could have got anybody to do $200 a set thousand but I was like no what Bill Burr is going to bring to the show I think it should be an even split and then things started happening where Bill started moving along and you know it was it but I remember being a part of that transition with Bill Burr from not nobody knowing. And we did a year of this tour. So he was able then Bill was smart too, Barry, because he was one of the guys that started with the comment cards, the email list. So he started building that fan base of it. And I lot know a lot of it contributed. Those first two years was what we all built together as a team. Tracy Morgan. Um, funny motherfucker. Goddamn crazy motherfucker. Out to Tracy Morgan. Is the motherfucker that beat me out of a lot of jobs. <laughs> That's what Tracy... But Tracy Morgan also, he helped me learn how to get more into characters I did because I used to do this one character about a white guy running his hands through his hair, right? And I would do this and I would stop right here. And Tracy was like, yo, if you're going to do that shit, go all the way. And then he told me, go from here. He said, pull the hair all the way back and throw it. He is God Told me how to like milk it, take it for everything his guy, and he's been a good friend and and um, and we've had respect to each other for over 27 years.
0: Joe Rogan.
1: Joe Rogan is the fucking modern day Johnny Carson, and I, the thing that I respect about Joe Rogan is that the way you build a friendship or relationship with Joe is like what you put out on the stage. That's how he connects with you. That's how he connected with me, and since then I've been on his show four times, and he's a, a very stand-up guy. He's giving me advice when it comes to his podcast stuff. He's just a great human being, man. Jamie Foxx. Jamie Foxx is another um, guy that I respect that um, that has seen me at the beginning of my career and always had a mutual respect for me. Multi-talented. Like, Jamie Foxx is like, what can't he do and i don't know like he's a renaissance man like he could steal your girl from you so many ways sing to her dance to her tell her jokes or whatever but just a great guy and, and like they don't make him like that no more just you know how you meet somebody at one part of their career and then as things go on it's like well he's always been a straight straight shooter and a good good guy
0: Hey everybody, let me remind you one more time about my new blueprint for success. It's a project I've spent months and months working on just to help you jumpstart your comedy career and beat the competition. Whether you want to do stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, radio, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or agent, Blueprint for Success will give you all the tools you need to take your career to the highest levels. With exclusive interviews, my top 50 commercial free episodes from Industry Standard, one-on-one coaching with me, and unprecedented access into my knowledge and experience from over 40 years in this crazy business, I guarantee you that with Blueprint for Success, you'll become the creator you've always dreamed of becoming. No one's asking me to do this. I want to do it because I want to help you become truly undeniable. So just go to berrycats.com, click on Blueprint for Success, and start your incredible journey today. I truly can't wait to work with you to help you change the trajectory of your comedy career forever.
1: Korean. Young them, they got Tong Sang Ariso, Hongo I speak a little Korean. They got young them, old guy, Tong Sang little boy, and that's how I would talk to Bobby Lee. I go, Toby McGuire. Whoa, he stole that guy's pizza. When I think about Toby McGuire, I think about the only like like uh, one of those super. Uh, Marvel, or I don't, I, what is it, Marvel? Was it Marvel? Spider-Man. Spider-Man 2. Um, when I think it told me, I remember him riding down the street of Spider-Man 2 on a bicycle. He's about to be late for his delivery, and he comes out as Spider-Man. And I'm going to tell you, Barry, when I did that shot, uh, um, Sam Raimi, that's me, Sam Raimi gives up, he gives you the scenario. down there Rollins, this is Spider-Man. Right. He goes in the alley, he comes out. What would you say? And San Raimi with 30 people that work for him behind him, he says, what would you say, Donnell? And I looked at that little arrow and I said, whoa, he stole that guy's pizza. And the line that I improv was a line that stuck in the movie. And it was a line that he kept saying all day after I said that. Incredible. What was the original line? It wasn't. Oh, there was no line. Let me tell you something, Barry. I was not supposed to be in this sketch. Here's a backstory. The week that I shot that, right, I was supposed to do some Man on the Street stuff for BET. The producers, um, the director wanted me, the producers didn't. So we're going back and forth the whole week. Got to the point, Friday. I I gotta get this gig. Friday, I do a dress and everything. I'm ready to go to work on Saturday. That night, Jason Steinberg um, called me. Your manager. My manager, Jason Steinberg says, Jason
0: was the guy who also ran the Boston Comedy Club for me. So Jason said guy.
1: Jason, uh I found out from B. T. that I lost a job the day before I was supposed to get it. And I was like, fuck B. T. That's fucked up. I'm doing a man on the street shit. At the time of my career, I was doing Ricky Lake and some other stuff. It was a good look. And I was so mad, Barry, I was like, Man, that's so fucked up, B. T. They let me go. Less than twenty four hours, they dropped me. That morning Jason calls me and says, we got a call from Spider-Man, they want you to come in. What happened was, the cameo, it's a reaction shot, you know, it's a reaction, you audition for that. Stan Lee was supposed to do that. Stan Lee got sick or something, he couldn't do it. So I was a last minute, they was like, oh shit. They looked at the tape, Sam Raimi, they said, bring him in, right? And when I came on, says Sam Raimi, said, Donnell, you're the greatest actor I know in New York. He said, but you're the only actor I know in New York, (laughs) right? And this is San Raimi, and then we going through this, the clothes that I wore in that scene, those were my clothes. I didn't even get wardrobe (laughs) or anything. The funny thing about it, where we shot that scene, it just so happened, where I was supposed to meet BET to do my Man on the Street stuff, it was literally buried on the same block. So when the BET people saw me walking past, they was like, nobody told him that he doesn't have the job? I walk past them, fucking connected with Sam <laughs> Raimi, and the moral of the story is, nobody remembers the man on the street for BET, but they remember the man on the street for Spider-Man too. Awesome. Great story. Awesome, awesome, awesome. Tiffany Haddish. Uh, trials, tribulations, and when you say uh, she ready, so proud of what she's done for herself. And the reason why I say that, because you know, it's been some questions about some of her stand-up and stuff, blah, blah, blah. I was like, what people don't understand is that Tiffany, her whole career, she's positioned herself to be a comedic actress. And a lot of things she uh, compromised to become a good actress. Those road gigs, out there with a headliner for a year. It's like, no, I want to be here for these auditions. And I'm so proud because she's one of the most authentic, um, deserving people that I know absolutely
0: Amy Schumer
1: <laughs> I just want to say her, her husband is a great cook and I'll just leave it in that set okay <laughs> I swear to god oh my god yeah moving along yes Bert Kreischer. Funny, I think I'm one or two of Bert Christ's favorite black friends, if not the only one. but he's a dude that I work with before that uh, just proud to say um he's my friend, you know what I mean He's my friend. He's a good guy, always been respect always respected me. I've always had respect for him and like whenever I ever call him, I need to do a podcast or something. He's a good dude, man. I really like him he's in like he's a fucking hang. Absolutely, he's a good hang. To the point, I'm like this, yo. I don't know if I can hang with this hang, but just a good guy, man. Really good guy.
0: The late Charlie Murphy,
1: one of the realest people, genuine. Um, I know this is kind of crazy thing, people like this toxic masculinity, masculinity, but Charlie Murphy is a man's man. Neil Brennan. Neil Brennan is the sole reason why I had a relationship with The Chappelle Show. Not Dave, but the show. After Dave and Neil did Half-Bake, and you know this timeline, Neil was- First movie I ever worked on. Neil was a coveted writer in Hollywood. Neil had written a couple scripts, he sold them, but his work wasn't getting the green light. It was like write it, nothing happens. So he wanted to start directing, but he didn't. He never directed. He didn't have a director's reel or anything. So he wrote this one man show, one man show, a one one this movie with one character, and he reached out to Steinberg at the time and he said, um, "I really uh, like Donnell because he's seen me around the circuit." He said, "You think he would do this for me?" And at the time, I had did HBO's The Corner. Um, I was doing some good things and I was like, I told Neil. The wire. The wire, yeah. And I said, Neil, um, I know you can't afford to pay me. He was already, had some money. I said, I know you can't afford to pay me, but if you're ever in a situation where you can throw me a bone, throw me a bone. And nobody ever does it, Barry, you know. People always say, I got you, then what happened? Oh, right? So some time passed, maybe like seven or eight months, and he was like, I'm working on this project. I was like, okay, just let me know. I was like, what's the name of the project? I don't know. I'm like, when you get a name for let me know. Cut to a couple months later. The project that he was working on was Chappelle's show. So he brought me in, but Dave, of course he had to endorse it. Like if you talk about relationships and friendship, Dave was really gunning for Greer Barnes to blow up off the show or give him the opportunities. Greer Barnes a good friend of mine. He's funny, but for some reason, my connection with the show, every time I did something, I was popping. but. I'm pretty sure if it wasn't for Neil Brennan, I wouldn't have had the opportunity to be on that show. Our friendship has been tested. Me and Neil Brennan. But like I could never take away from what he was to me in that show and in the respect that he gave me because, you know, you gotta get to the plate. And people always say, Donnell, if it wasn't for the Chappelle show, and I take that to a certain extent, but but that show, like, the reason why I kept I kept getting in the game because I was hitting home runs. I m- made my presence known. They would have never brought me back to do another sketch, another sketch if I was wet. So as much as they gave me the platform, they gave me a platform to do what I do and at the end of the day, it worked out for everybody.
0: Somebody else was in that pilot that... Reggie McFadden. Reggie McFly. Can I tell you this story? Reggie to to this day probably still does not know know, what happened and how come he's not in the show.
1: I'm gonna tell you what happened, Barry. And I'm gonna tell you what happened. And I've never said this before. And the reason why I was upset with Reggie, because Reggie had a sketch where he had to play the weatherman. Right? Nobody knew what this show was gonna be. Patrice O'Neal didn't know what the show was gonna be. Patricia O'Neill had money with issue with the money. Reggie had the issue with how talented he really thought he was. We had this one sketch in particular. He had to play this news. Guy, weather guy, and Reggie just kept getting stuck in it. He can. It was like such a waste of time, right? They kept fucking up. And at the time, Neil and Dave could just pit put whoever they wanted on the show, no auditions or anything. So it was such a waste of money for Comedy Central. What Reggie did, that Comedy Central said, we're not just going to let you guys pick it. We want to just open auditions up for everybody. You want a role? They got audition for it. So I asked Neil. I said, What's the next thing I'm being? Ben. He said, Oh yeah, B oh, you got to audition. I was like, I got to audition. I was like, I'm rich, bitch. Like, my voice punctuates every episode. Right? So they said that, no, now Donnell, and I was established myself, you have to audition. And this is why I was telling, like, listen, sometimes you got to go above and beyond and do what other people won't do. Because I had a choice to make, Barry. I could have been a cocky motherfucker and said, offer only. You know what my work is. I can't believe this. But I knew if i chose that route, I wasn't gonna be on the show. So I said, you know what, fuck it. I'll go on the show, I'll go on the audition, I'll rip so hard, I, I went in this audition, I ripped so hard, and at the end of it I said, so do I have to audition anymore, right? And I went so hard, I was so aggressive that I never auditioned again. But you know, disrespect to Reggie, because Reggie at that time, he was a hot comic, or whatever, he was doing a living cut, a lot of things, but um, he was the reason why I had to audition, I had to, Chin check myself and do something different
0: again. You talk about Patrice O'Neill, Reggie McFadden, they complicate winning. Donnell Rollins doesn't complicate winning.
1: Win, win, J Rock has that song, Fuck Everything Else, Win, 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 Win. And even like the best, like I don't know if it's a compliment or whatever, but for you to say that and for you to have the history of comedy that you have and to say he continues to win. And it might not be on the financial level. It might not be on ultimate success. But for me, winning is to be able to stay in this business as long as I have and still get something out of it. Last one, Dave Chappelle. Good friend, humble, and a guy that really, really, Forces you to be great. He forces it because you're around. If he he forces you to be great, he forces you to dig deeper and bring out everything that you have to offer. And I'm talking about, I'm older than him. I called him, I came up with a new term. I said, this dude is younger than me, but he gave me advice like an uncle. He's like a young uncle, so I call him a yunkle. <laughs> that's a new term. He's a young. Uh, and it's so fascinated about him, he's like this. How is this motherfucker can talk about anything in the world, Barry? Didn't go to college. You know what I'm saying? You know how young he was. Like, How do you have that brain as someone that's not formally taught on anything, 15 to 16, like right out of high school. He's um, he's a, a special person and as he gets older, I just think it's gonna just get more and he's gonna continue to evolve.
0: He's part genius, part thought leader, and part extraordinary modern day philosopher
1: 100 percent. that's why i've had nights where my lady thought i was cheating because i'm like where are you guys where are you guys i'm like oh we're at this uh speak easy talking And like yeah right five o'clock in the morning he can do it he can start off a conversation at 12 midnight and just keeps going on and on and on
0: your proudest moment in show business?
1: I think my proudest moment in show business had to be um, when I booked Def Comedy Jam.
0: Who was on your show?
1: Um, uh, and who Why, hopes- at the One Man Riot, um, uh, Joe Torrey was the host, some more, and J. Anthony Brown, and Michael Blackson. And I'm going to tell you, I was, you know, when you did that. You mother, mother Let me tell you something though, Barry. When when we did that, back then, you on that show, you had four or five performers. One person always gonna get cut. I know. One person always gonna get cut. I was young comedy then. I didn't really know how to rip a crowd or anything. I had a okay, I think I had an okay set. But the reason why I made the cut is because Michael Blackson was on the show with me. Michael Blackson completely demolished the fucking room. The, the response he had would have made him an overnight... Star, he devoured the room. But he
0: was wearing the African. The more, Dashiki, more this drink. is
1: what it th- he, yo Barry, just. I'm like I'm watching the set like you're not gonna make the cut, and what he, what happened was at the end of it, he was ripping. He said, "You muddy fuckers, you know I'm a African, right? And I have a big dick, right?" They was like, ah. "You want to see my big dick?" They was like, "Yeah, yeah." He pulls out a prosthetic dick probably like about four foot dick and waving orders. An this was like the season after people was like, this is getting a little too raunchy. It was just too much. And he probably had the most explosive set out of everybody there, but they had to cut it, which gave me the opportunity to slide it. So every time I talked to Mike, I'm like, thank you for putting me on Def Comedy Jam.
0: Hey, everybody, thanks for listening to the podcast. I want to talk to you about an amazing documentary that I worked on a few years back called I Killed JFK, which was unlike anything I ever did in my life. It's centered on a man who'd been in prison for 30 years, who's the only person in history to have admitted to killing Kennedy, and his story is unbelievable. He started as a runner for the mob. He was hired to drive two hitmen from that city around Dallas, and he ended up being the guy who calibrated their weapons. And he was there that day with one of his own and took the fatal shot that killed John F. Kennedy on the grassy knoll. His story, the footage, the interviews, never been seen before. You can't find them anywhere else except on this documentary. So go to barrykatz.com to the merch page and buy the documentary with the rare interviews of the five greatest historical experts in the world. So just go to barrykatz.com, the merch page, pick up the documentary and interviews, and I guarantee it will reverse the way you feel about what happened that day in 1963 and change your opinion of the government and how it works and alter the way you think about things forever. Lastly, I want to talk to you about something really impactful and involves something really close to my heart. Self-education. You see, throughout my life, I realized that every success I've ever achieved in my career has come from the education I received from my experiences in the business. And I truly believe that we all have the knowledge inside of us that others would kill for. And by sharing that, we can open up an entirely new world of possibilities for ourselves. That's why I'm so excited to tell you that I partnered up with my friend Tony Robbins, who's been number one in this field for 40 years. Along with his team of experts Dean Graziosi and Russell Bronson. They'll show you how to take that valuable knowledge in your mind and turn it into an incredibly profitable mastermind, workshop, or event, just like they have and continue to do in their careers. And they're launching a new training program that's literally changing people's lives by helping people like you be a part of this $129 billion a year business. So it's an incredible opportunity for someone like yourself to build your own business, share your knowledge and help and serve people in a huge way with the guidance of tony robbins the best in the business he's actually going to teach people like you how to make big money and build a successful business so if you're ready to take your life to the next level they're doing a free live training session today at barrykbb.com that's b-a-r-r-y k-b-b dot look I've done over 440 free podcast episodes of Industry Standard, and because of your incredible response, it's reinforced my belief that we're morally obligated to share and pass on our knowledge with the world and help other people in those ways. I truly believe this, and I really love this groundbreaking training program and how it can turn your knowledge into an extraordinary amount of money. So just go to barrykbb.com, that's B-A-R-R-Y-K-B-B.com, to this free training session with the best in the business, Tony Robbins. I guarantee you, it will change your life forever. As always, this has been Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. And if you like the show, tell all your friends. And if you don't like the show, tell all your friends.
1: You get all the money. Drive that fancy car. All the people love you. Cause you're going for life is for the dreamer. They have all to gain. It's never quite over. So it all feels
0: Thank you for listening to Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of new episodes or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to BarryKatz.com. Before you leave, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast, leave a comment, and rate it, even if you think it blows. Thank you for your support and have a great day.